I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. Welcome to The Last Mile Radio. We're paving the road to success. No lie. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a mission for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. Hey, paving the road to success. I'm paving the road to be my best. I'm paving the road to success. Yo, E. Chris, what up, what up, what up? Well, today we're going to have a really interesting conversation about a different avenue for employment, especially those that were just as involved as youth. And uh, looking at not only a job, but creating a, a potential career in something that is different from what we do at the last mile in technology, it's more long traditional uh, employment in the restaurant business. Right. And I'm excited to have that conversation. I'm curious from your perspective, mm-hmm. I know what my journey has been with the last mile and those who have gotten out and, and getting involved in tech, uh, you come you know, you had a portfolio certainly in music, but when you got out, what was the, what were the opportunities that you had sort of in a traditional sense or were there any? So Chris, I got to say, man, I, I, my, my experience, I've been very fortunate, man. I'm blessed. Definitely blessed. I had um, several opportunities actually. Like when I first got out, I was working like four jobs at one point in time. No exaggeration. My first initial job, I got out to a fellowship with a uh, restorative justice nonprofit by the name of Restore, Restore Justice. Started off as an administrative assistant with them. But while I was working that job, I ended up getting a job out of all places at a restaurant. (laughs) So definitely understand uh, that restaurant grind, man. And it is serious. It's not for the week. It's not for the week at all. Never would have imagined that the restaurant is that much of a grind, bro. For real. I get you because that's how I worked my way way through college was working in restaurants. So I get you, man. It is a grind. Was there, did you have any resistance getting hired though, uh, coming out of prison? So I didn't, man. It actually, um, again, man, just being blessed and fortunate enough to have community. You know what I mean? To have community. And it was a person within my community. I actually used to attend a class, uh, Inside Garden Program. Mm, Yes, your boy was a gardener. Yes, yes. But uh, Inside Garden Program, um, man, one of my people from the Inside Garden family, man, lined me up uh, with a job as well as a bunch of people. You know what I mean? It was was, uh, about like three, four people that I actually personally did time with I was working there as well. You know what I mean? And yeah, it wasn't it wasn't difficult getting that job at all because it was people that actually wanted to help, you know, just wanted to mm-hmm. help uplift people in their situation, get people on their feet, understood, we're fresh out and um, just wanted to offer that lifeline. So uh, I want to talk about the gardening some other day because I want you, I didn't know you were a gardener, <laughs> but we'll have another conversation about that. For sure. Um, but again, these were conversations or opportunities you started while you're still incarcerated. Is that fair to say? Definitely. Now, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know about the restaurant gig until after I was incarcerated. However, those relationships were established while I was incarcerated. And I think that's a very important part of being in the work field, period, of any of any nature, you know, is, is networking, obtaining resources through networking and things of that nature. So I think that's uh, obviously like how the opportunity was even able to present itself in the first place. If I would have never obtained those resources and networked the way I did previously um, to my freedom, you know, so yep. it started in there, but not directly. Yeah, I think that's a it's an important piece that I don't think people realize that the the journey doesn't start at the gate or stop at the gate. Definitely, It has to 
be fluid all the way through. Something we learned really early on was that. And uh, we started the last mile in San Quentin, which is very close to San Francisco. Right there. And part of what we did was bring people in from the business community to see what we were doing, start to meet some of the residents in there and some of the students in our class classes, and get a sense of who these people are, create some humanity inside before even starting those employment conversations. And then there's a there's a point of comfort when you get out, right? Right. It's security. Yeah. yeah. And there's been cases where, you know, m- more than one where we've had folks in the program who've gotten hired prior to getting out, mm-hmm. right? And think about, put, you know, yourself in that situation. What does that feel like when you know you're going to get out and you have a job waiting for you? This should not be the exception. It should be more the norm. How would you feel yes. about that? Yes. First and foremost, man, got to echo, this should not be the exception. This should be the norm. Oh, my God. That's a 100% truth to that. Um, but the feeling, Chris, I got to say, man, it, it, it's very it's very securing. You know what I mean? One thing I could say, and I had this discussion with a lot of people right before I got out, right? Um, you hear a lot of people tell you, I got you. I got you. I got you. And it's like, what the hell does that mean, bro? I'm in prison yeah. right now. <laughs> like, I need some, I need something in writing, like now. Like, you know what I mean? Okay, you got me. You know what I mean? People say that. It's like, bro, what does that mean? You know what I mean? So it's like, it's very securing when you already got it in writing. It's very securing, which, which brings a sense of comfort. You know what I mean? Because that's one less thing you got to worry about when you come home. Is how the hell am I finna? How, how am I finna maintain my livelihood? You know, where's my money going to come from? And typically one of the main things that lead people, you know, back down the wrong path and resorting back to old behaviors is the lack of money. So if you don't have a plan for that, it's scary, especially if you're already on the fence, depending on where you're at in your growth. And unfortunately, it's a lot of people, you know, that grow, but we're all human. You know what I mean? Everybody responds to 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 hardships and, and, and adversity differently. Um, again, depending on where you're at, your, where, where you're at in your growth. So. If you're not far along, far enough along, should I say, in your journey of growth to be able to handle that type of stuff, it's a very high possibility in the back of your mind. You like, man, if don't nothing work out, I'm finna go back to doing this. I gotta do what yep. I gotta do. So it's so securing and it creates a sense of comfortability and it just really eases your mind when you know that's one box checked off of something you don't gotta worry about when you touch down. That's right. And the boxes, from our experience, the boxes are employment. Right. Housing and community slash family. Yep. Right? Yep. That's it. For sure. If you have those things, then your chances of surviving and being successful are dramatically improved. Dramatically. When you think about the recidivism rates are, you know, 50% or higher nationally, but those that are, have career opportunities are in low single digits. Right. That's certainly the case for the last mile. It's almost... You know, very limited recidivism, which means you reoffend and go back to prison. Right. And, you know, in a lot of it's around those three things. Uh, and we, you know, try to obviously prepare people for employment, but we're also building an organic community Definitely. now having 600 plus people home. That's a big amount of people with a common background, right? And a common experience going through that. And we try to really reinforce that. Uh, And there are so many examples of that being successful from 
very unlikely backgrounds. And I'll give you a, a, a couple examples. Uh, you know, when we first started our technology program, it really took some CEOs and companies to step up mm-hmm. and say, I'm going to commit my resources to this. And mm-hmm. one of those was Stuart Butterfield, who is the CEO of Slack. Many people know Slack. Mm-hmm. It's a technology company. It was acquired by Salesforce, very successful. And he really believed in, you know, uh, criminal justice reform and those things that are contributing to that. And uh, we started a, an apprenticeship program with Slack. And two of the first apprentices came out of Ironwood State Prison, which is in Southern California, middle of nowhere in Blythe. It's a Desert. horrible place. Yeah. Um, but they were both uh, incarcerated as youth. One was originally given a double life sentence because he was in the proximity of a murder and didn't commit the murder, mm. but in the proximity. And, it was, and as a result, long story, that some of the laws changed and legislation changed, and they were both uh, given f- their freedom. They both got out. Thank God. But never had any formal education, you know? But they went through this technology training program. They had the support of this company. And today... This is now, I'm saying five years ago. Today, they're both senior software engineers at Slack. Wow. And making significant income. But it comes back to they had this opportunity coming out and they had the support of the company. Right. And they had the community of the last mile behind them. Right. But this is what is so important and this is what is lacking. And we see a lot of talk about fair chance hiring from big companies but we haven't actually seen that happen to any degree. It hasn't really scaled, you know? Right. And this is the mission we're on, but it's, I'm curious to, again, from your experience and those people that you were around mm-hmm. um, that didn't necessarily have that support, what was the end result? Now, the ones that didn't have that support, unfortunately, I, I can say I know a lot of people, you know, that kind of slipped. You know, that kind of slipped in their journey. Unfortunately, I do know people that did go back. But I also know people that had to just endure it. You know what I mean? And figure it out. And it was gruesome. It was real brutal. For the ones that didn't slip, for the ones that held steadfast, you know, and they walked, it was just really disheartening to see some of the things that they had to face, such as, like, really trying to get jobs and couldn't. Whether it was because they didn't have the experience or literally because of their criminal history, which to my knowledge isn't yep. even legal anymore. But from what I was being told, like that had something to do with it. So it was just real disheartening to see, especially for myself when I'm doing good. You know what I mean? When I'm doing good and I don't have these issues per se. And in the lands that I was in, it wasn't any openings or any ways that I can really, you know, assist, you know, and pass the ball. It it was just real disheartening to see, you know, good people go through these terrible situations and and have to get their faith tested in that type of way. Um, And even have to, you know, even the ones that I, to, to my knowledge, at least didn't slip, but contemplated it. Just to even be put in that position where you got to contemplate, damn, am I going to have to go back to, you know, old behaviors? Like, that is, that's traumatizing. So talk to me about the mindset, because I've seen it over and over again, when people are given an opportunity, who've done the work, we talk a lot about doing the work inside, working on yourself and preparing for life after prison, and the commitment and dedication of folks that are getting out, it seems a little counterintuitive that people say, oh, you're coming out of prison. You're not going to have that work ethic. You're not going to have that commitment. <laughs> Talk know. to me about that. 
Talk to me about that. To me, I laugh, too, because for the people that think that, that is just hilarious to me, right? Like, if you only knew how hungry people are behind those walls, how hungry they are, you know what I mean? And, and, and that hunger comes from wanting to do better and wanting to be better. You know what I mean? By any means. So I, I know people that wouldn't mind working at McDonald's, man, flipping burgers instead of going back to the streets and, and doing things that might get them in trouble just based on they want to be better. But with that, they're going to honor that McDonald's job possibly better than anybody else working back there based on it's just a completely different level of appreciation. And, and Chris, I'm sure you experienced this and was able to identify, you know, these traits, but like, it's just a different level of appreciation for opportunities given. But what comes with that appreciation, what that looks like is a much better, is, is, is a much better work ethic. You're going to work harder. You're going to try harder to succeed. You're going to try harder to outdo yourself because you want to see growth. You know what I mean? But also you want to be able to contribute to who's helping you. You want to contribute, yeah. you know, to whatever team you you just joined because they believed in you so now you want to do your best to make sure that you achieve this common goal of whatever it is that your role is you're going to execute that to an all-time high remember i told you i was working at that restaurant now it was a bunch of people complaining i found out very quickly the restaurant business is gruesome bruh it is a grind but me and the people that were formerly incarcerated that I did time with, we'd have these conversations and be like, man, shit, this beat, this beat sitting in that cell. No kidding. This beat working in the kitchen in prison. This is a blessing. No kidding. You feel what I'm saying? I do. And, and I talk a lot about, um, you know, this jobs are missions, not jobs. It's a personal mission to be successful. For real. Right? And, and that's not bullshit. It's really true that the work ethic, commitment, dedication, loyalty. For real. I mean, for me coming to, you know, in Silicon Valley and seeing the lack of loyalty in companies. So many people in the tech business, they'll go to a company, they'll work for a couple of years, they'll get some equity and they'll move on, right? That sense of loyalty doesn't exist. Here, our experience with this particular community, it does exist. And as you said, if the company is loyal to me, I'm going to be loyal to the company. Definitely. Right? And I think that goes a long way. And again, it seems a bit counterintuitive, but I've seen it over and over and over again to say, I, I, I approach companies with confidence saying you should employ, you're going to have a good experience. I, I, I want to challenge any and everybody that's in a position to hire somebody, right? I want to challenge you to hire a formerly incarcerated person that has that sense of appreciation for that opportunity and then compare them to somebody that doesn't. And let's just see who produces more. Let's see who brings a different energy. Let Just make those simple comparisons. Just sit back and observe. And I guarantee the proof is going to be in the pudding. I guarantee it's going to be indubitable difference. I'm telling you, at the end of the day, based on that appreciation, based on that mindset, the actions that follow is guaranteed to happen. I can't think of not one person that I know that's formerly incarcerated that appreciates their job that does not give it their all. I can't think of not one that's half-assing. And I know a lot of people. Yep. You know what I mean? I'm talking like literally possibly hundreds of formerly incarcerated people that I could think of right off the bat that are excelling in their work field and they appreciate it. And the reason that they're excelling is because of that appreciation. And like you said, the loyalty comes with that. Just the overall work ethic is different. It's not like we looking at this like, oh, it's a crappy job. I'm just doing what I got to do. It's like, this is a blessing, man. I came from nothing. I know what it's like to be behind them walls. I know what it's like to work in a kitchen in prison where I'm getting paid eight cents an hour. 
You know what I mean? Now I'm out here with enough to actually support my livelihood. If you got kids or anything like that, you know what I mean? Now I can support livelihood for my children. I'm paving the way. So it's just different with the mindset. So the actions is going to be way different. So I challenge you, you know, for real. Yeah. I think also you, you made a good point that if you are a parent, you get out of prison and you, and you take that straight and narrow, your family is going to be so proud. And, and you know, we've had, we've had alumni events where uh, folks bring their family and just to see the pride in the families, you know, uh, that now they're on a different life trajectory and it's so heartfelt. It's really cool to see. Uh, and that's why I love going to those events because it's, it's about the family too. Definitely. Definitely. Again, like we said earlier, the family is a huge part into, you know, being reacclimated. That That's your support system, you know, from your biological to your extended family. Like it's all in the same boat. But those are some of the things that are motivating factors. You know what I mean? For a lot of people, especially for a lot of men, you know, coming from behind those walls. Like we literally fantasize about being able to take care of our families behind those walls. Like you, you have no idea, Chris, how many conversations I didn't have with men like man, I just can't wait to go home and take care of my family, take some of this burden off my wife, be able to do this for my son and show that example to show what could be done, show it show what it looks like to be a hardworking man. You know what I mean? Like literally those are some of the things that a lot of men behind those walls fantasize about. So again, when you get the opportunity to do it, it's just a different energy, man. And it's coming at a different pace. And it's just a completely different force. You know what I mean? So I think that's something that a lot of people are unaware of. I don't think people realize how many people want to be better, but the reasons why they want to be better. Not be, not not just because, you know, they want, don't want to cause harm. Not just because they were part of the problem. But they also want to be better for their loved ones. They want to be an example. They want to be able to display and teach you know what I mean? Each one teach one. That's real in the community. And it's a lot of people that have that mindset. So that's some of the things that's fueling them when they're working. That's some of the f- things that's fueling their consistency, that's fueling their overall efforts and energy. You know what I mean? That's fueling that loyalty. Like that's some of the things that's doing it because they want to show their kids. They want to show their nieces, cousins, nephews. They want to show was possible and be that example. You know what I mean? So it's so many things that factor in to formerly incarcerated people and justice impacted people in general in the work field. You know what I mean? And why? It's a no brainer. <laughs> like literally it is a no brainer. You're going to get some of the best people to work for you. It's possible. Well, our guest is an example of that. And he's given a bunch of folks opportunities and he's expanding his mission um, we're talking about Chad Hauser, Cafe Momentum. They started out with one restaurant. Now they're expanded to three, I believe it is now, and continue to move and give those opportunities to those young folks. And he'll give examples of exactly what you're talking about. So I'm looking forward to having that conversation with Chad Hauser. Absolutely. It's going down. So stay tuned. We're going to be chopping it up with Chad Hauser when we return. So stay tuned right here on SiriusXM. This is The Last Mile Radio. Yes, yes, we are back. We are back. You are tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM. It's going down. Yo, Chris, I got to say, man, I'm definitely excited to get into this discussion we about to have right now, man. Oh, man, I'm looking forward to it. This is this is great. 
Absolutely. But before we get into it, I just want to give a little background on our guest today. After 17 years as a successful, renowned Dallas area chef, Chad Hauser pivoted to devote all of his energy to the role of CEO of Cafe Momentum in 2012. And three years ago, co-founded Momentum Advisory Collective, a nonprofit organization built to scale Cafe Momentum and expand a new model for juvenile justice across the country. Chad has appeared on many network shows, including The Rachel Ray Show, The Steve Harvey Show, and Good Morning America, and now The Last Mile Radio. Chad Hauser, welcome to The Last Mile Radio. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm incredibly honored to be here with, with such incredible company. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you all, man. That, that's it, Chad. I really appreciate it. You know, you've done amazing stuff, and and we chatted prior to going on air about, you know, expanding and you know, starting with one with one location and then now going to multiple cities and we'll talk about your journey and so forth, but that just it exponentially grows the responsibility and, and the work. But before we get there, you know, I think it'd be really interesting for people to understand the background journey because this is not typical, right? And uh, I, I know firsthand it's not typical, that journey that you take, and then it takes you to a, a much different direction. Can you give us a sense of how this all started? So kind of going back, if you'll extend me a little bit of latitude, um, but I, I think it's important. You know, my, my mom graduated high school in 1973, and I was born in 1975. And the significance of that is that the high school that she graduated from was the first high school in Dallas to be desegregated when she was a freshman. Wow. Um, so that... So that meant for me, you know, my mom and my grandmother were best friends. Um, and so we were at my grandparents' house every weekend, my mom and my grandma sewing, my grandpa and I working in the garden in the backyard, me chasing lizards, you know, whatever. But it gave me a glimpse into a neighborhood um, that was one of the first neighborhoods in Dallas to be a victim of white flight because the moment they started busing black students into my mom's school, most all white families left. Subsequently, the suburb that I grew up in was a creation created out of white flight. And so living in those two worlds of, you know, going to school every day in, in a very lily white middle-class suburb of Dallas, but spending so much time on the weekends and, and in the summers running around a very racially and socioeconomically diverse community just started to kind of plant seeds. You know, there wasn't a lot of kids in my grade school, middle school, high school that were on a free lunch program, but I, I watched my grandfather hook the garden hose up to his kitchen sink so he could run warm water into the neighbor's backyard to fill up a kiddie pool because they couldn't pay their water bill that month. And, and that's how my friend that lived next door and his little brother would bathe sometimes. And so it just planted seeds to me in kind of the tale of two worlds. You know, grew up in a household where graduating high school was, was not optional. It was mandatory. Going to college was not optional. It was mandatory. Graduating college was not optional. It was mandatory. So much so that when I was in college, I spent two years getting all my basics under my belt and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but college tells you you have to declare a major. And so based on a, a poem by the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, I decided that I was going to base the rest of my career on that poem and major in English literature, but told my parents that I was going to try cooking after I graduated college because it was the only thing that was of interest to me. And my dad, who who uh, had grand visions of me getting a degree in English literature and spending the rest of my life sleeping on my parents' couch, um, encouraged me to go to culinary school. And so I did. Um, graduated two years later and, and came out of culinary school with, with one goal, and that was to own a restaurant and 
and be the chef. And in 2007, I had the opportunity to buy into a restaurant here in Dallas and sold my house, took all the equity out of it, took out a loan, bought into the restaurant, thought I did it. I've achieved my career goals um, only to watch our uh, economy go into a recession and every restaurant around mine closing because they couldn't sustain. But in spite of that, my first year of co-ownership, I helped to grow the business by almost 40% and was nominated as best up and coming chef in Dallas, in which I thought I was a risk-taking genius. Uh, <laughs> I was I was ready to build my empire. Um, but but it was right at the one-year mark of co-ownership that I was volunteered to go inside a Dallas County Juvenile Detention Facility to teach eight young men how to make ice cream for an ice cream competition uh, at the Dallas Farmer's Market, wow. uh, where they would be competing against college culinary students. And it was the moment that I walked in and met those eight young men that I felt arguably the greatest sense of shame I've ever felt because the moment I met them, I realized that I had wrongfully and egregiously stereotyped them, uh, labeled them, and I thought I was a better human being. But when confronted with the reality, literally face to face, I was wrong. What kind of thoughts did you have about him previously? And so you got, you know, just thinking about like, the, like a gangsta stereotype, like, right, right, you know, right. hood, street, for lack of better terms, it's the stereotype society put on young men of color, especially coming from marginalized neighborhoods. And so, and I just fit right in with the stereotype. So I spent the next three and a half hours, we made ice cream, but I, I, I listened. I listened to eight young men teach me who they were, how they were, and why they were. And two days later, the county brought them down to the farmer's market. They're standing in jail-issued clothes alongside college culinary students with chef coats on and chef pants on. And uh, Wait, so they got to participate in this competition while they, they were incarcerated? Yes, participate That's while they were job. incarcerated. Yeah. And one of the young men actually won the whole competition. He was so excited. He's screaming in my face, sir, I just love to cook. And I'm screaming back in his face, sir, me too. Um, <laughs> and he said, uh, which I, I think to this day is still the most beautiful way I've ever heard a human being describe their heart. He said, I just love to make food and give it to people and put a smile on their face. Wow. Um, and and I, I knew his story. And for any human being, it would have been admirable for them to say, I want to make food and, and help pay rent or the electric bill or shoes for my little brother or, you know, instead he spoke to his heart. He said, when I get out, I'm going to get a job at a restaurant, asked my professional chef opinion on whether he should work at Wendy's or Chili's. And I professionally told him, whoever hires you first. And that day, you know, he went back to jail and I went home. Wow. And on my way home, I went from feeling excited to angry, inspired to sad, um, mm -hmm. because I knew his story. I knew he was never going to make it to a Wendy's or Chili's. And for me, just beginning to kind of process that and think through it, seeing how 16-year-old me had so many opportunities to succeed, to fail, to try again, 16-year-old him had one chance to show the world who he was, and he did, and it wasn't even going to get him a job at Wendy's or Chili's. And thinking about my childhood and growing up, the things that I saw, you know, it just dawned on me that for he and I, our lives were both dictated by choices that were made for us before we were ever born because the color of our skin, the socioeconomic class we were born in, the part of town that we were born in, resources we had access to or inaccess to. And I, I just, for me, it was this moment of thinking if this is the way the world really works, that's not the way that I want to show up in that world. Those harsh realities. When you were going through that story, it, I reflected back because when we started the last mile, we had demo days where the guys inside in San Quentin, we started, they presented their business ideas and the reception was so amazing. You know, some of the guys said it was the best day of their lives, really, because they worked so hard and they knocked it out of the park. 
And at the time, all the guys in that particular class were lifers. So they went back to their cells without even a sense of, are they ever going to get out to pursue anything? So fortunately, most of those guys have, but uh, have gotten out and been successful. But I, I can share that sort of feeling inside of, you know, on one side, you're, you're euphoric that, the, that we've all pulled this off. On the other side, you're really sad because you're going home and they're going back to, you know, their living conditions. So I can really, really reflect on that. It's, that's amazing. No, and that, I mean, so well put too. It's, it's just, a, um, it's, for lack of better terms, it's when reality just like literally hits you right in the face. Um, and you can't, it's overwhelming. The feeling is, you know, a, a, a overwhelming. Um, Absolutely. But for me, that meant um, leaning in and, and digging deeper. Um, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. Um, and um, it was my opportunity to continue to learn. Um, and so I started volunteering more time at the juvenile department, um, teaching cooking classes, um, uh, to the, to the youth. Um, and, um, and yet again, even then, um, years later, I had one of the, um, supervisors, I was meeting with him and he told me a story about how, uh, he thought uh, how crazy he thought I was and how disastrous it was going to be because I would walk into the kitchen at the juvenile facility and hand each young man a knife, um, and put him in front of open flames. Um, and that it was a, it was a lesson for him too, um, that the young people, uh, are a manifestation of what you put on them. Um, and that if you walk in with confidence that they're good, they're going to be good. If you walk in and tell them they're bad, then they're going to react, uh, accordingly. Um, but, but I spent that time, um, just learning. It was a time for me to listen. Um, we made a lot of fried rice, um, cause it was something <laughs> inexpensive and the kids liked. Um, but, um, I just listened, um, and, and the staff, um, inside the facility would talk a lot about consistency and stability. Um, Lord. yeah. And the, and the kids were telling me stories, um, that revolved around consistency and stability. And so for me, um, it was the beginning of the journey of, um, so what does that look like for me? Like, how do I play a role in consistency and stability and, and, and how do I build that, um, with what I know and what I can do. And, and that's where the initial idea for, for Cafe Momentum came about was, you know, building a restaurant. Uh, I think my exact quote to my business partner was, I just want to open a restaurant and let them run it. Uh, as did, and, as did. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure that could bring up so much, like you said, you know, you have. You know, these young these young kids, you know what I mean, who obviously have a justice impacted experience at this moment being incarcerated. I could only imagine, you know, people that knew me when I was 17. Fun fact, but not so fun at all. In actuality, I, I'm formerly incarcerated. I committed a crime when I was 17 years old. And I can only imagine the thoughts that would go through the people around me, mind knowing that I would have access to like knives and fire, the things that you mentioned. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, like. In the beginning, when it first started, like, did you have many naysayers in the beginning? Were people like concerned or anything like that? Like, what, what did that, what did that aspect of the? Oh yeah. Like? Oh no. Yes. Um, I was when I first started talking about the idea of of opening Cafe Momentum. Um, I had people tell me, "So, what are you going to do when the kids stab each other in the kitchen?" Um, I was told repeatedly, "Those kids don't want to work; they just want to collect a check." 
Um, I was told repeatedly, those kids have never been to a nice restaurant. They can't cook your food. Um, and, and again, like, you know, to to double down on it, it, it's, this is, this is what society is saying to these youth. They're saying, this is who you are. And so for a young person, they go into a system like the juvenile justice system that puts the scarlet letter on their chest where they accept this is who I am. It's not who I was born to be, but the world has told me repeatedly over and over again that this is who I am and I'll just listen. Um, and so I, I realized um, it's not even just, a, this isn't even just about opening a restaurant. It's about building a conversation. It's about bringing the community together, creating proximity because if any person in our community that said that would ever meet any of these young men, um, they would never say that about them, ever. And so uh, I came up with an idea to, to do monthly pop-up dinners. And the idea was um, go into one of the top restaurants in Dallas on a Sunday night when we're, they're closed and sell tickets to a private dinner, have the chef write a four-course menu. But the staff, um, not only working with um, the chef and, and, and kitchen team, uh, in the kitchen, but also serving to the level and quality of service of that restaurant were eight young men that we would uh, bring in from a, a juvenile detention facility. So eight currently incarcerated young men. Um, the first dinner was June 2011. Um, as you can probably pretty obvious, uh, I didn't expect anyone to show up. Um, in fact, I had a plan um, to call uh, my mom and have her guilt the ladies in her Bible study class at the buying tickets <laughs> to the dinner. So we at least have somebody there. Um, but the dinner sold out in less than 24 hours. And um, at, the, at the end of the dinner, every single person that walked out the door looked me right in the eye and said, this could be my son. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it was it was proof, right? It was it was that the, the proximity matters. And if you knew them, um, you would you would you would advocate for them and you would support them uh, about a year into those dinners. Um, they were selling out in like 15 seconds. They were super hot ticket, huge buzz. Um, and, um, but I also knew that, um, uh, I, I needed to walk the talk, um, that it's one thing to tell, uh, these young men that you believe in them, but it's something very different to prove it. Um, and so I, uh, sat down with my business partner and had a conversation with her, um, and uh, walked away from from my restaurant um, to focus my full time and attention uh, on on getting Cafe Momentum open. And uh, three and a half years and forty one pop up dinners later, we finally opened on January 29th, twenty ninth, twenty fifteen. And you are tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on Sirius XM, and we chopping it up with Chad Hauser. It's going down. You, you've empowered so many young people and, and gave them a lot of knowledge, a lot of game. Do you see your graduates opening their own restaurants? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked me that um, because that's a that's a, a common you know question we get. And mm-hmm. um, I, I always laugh here in Dallas. We do these uh, monthly concerts um, and they uh, um, uh, on Sunday nights in um, there's a room full of 800 people. And I always say, you know, by show of hands, how many of you ever worked in a restaurant or, or food service, catering, whatever in your life? And, and it's like 50% of the room raises their hand. Uh, and I say, keep your hand up if you still do. And every single person puts their hand back down. Um, and I said, but put your hand back up if you learned valuable life skills and social skills that have helped you uh, to be successful uh, in, in life as the human, uh, as a, 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 you know, uh, um, 
an employee, as a, a parent, as a as a spouse, you know, whatever. And everybody shoves their hands right back up in the air. Um, and so for us, um, you know, we truly try to meet our young people where they're at. Um, and so we we have no pre-design on them, uh, you know, continuing a life in the restaurant industry. But we want to, we built the program out to really focus on them um, being able to uh, build the confidence um, and life skill and social skill training that a restaurant affords them that they can carry on with them um, the rest of their life. And, and, and in fact, um, we have um, um, uh, medical assistants. Uh, we have um, wow. mechanics. We have construction workers, barbers, um, entrepreneurs um, that all kind of run the gamut. But um, leveraging that unique opportunity of the restaurant is kind of the thing that was the springboard for them. Um, and of course, if they do want to to stay in the restaurant industry, I tell them all the time that when I work myself out of a job, I'm going to be looking for a dishwashing position. So if they open a restaurant, uh, I'll be their dishwasher. Um, and, and you do see that um, some of them do want to stay in the restaurant industry. I think it's uh, this is completely ancillary, but I find it fascinating. Uh, most of them that want to stay in the restaurant industry really focus on pastry. Um, oh. They really want to do pastry. They love baking. Um, so, um, but yeah, but I'm glad you asked me that because I I think it is important that, you know, we don't, um, I always say we've had over a thousand youth come through the front doors of, of Cafe Moon of Dallas. And that means Mm -hmm. a thousand different lived experiences, a thousand different starting lines. Um, and we want to, we want to respect that, um, in their journey. Um, and so, you know, we focus on four things. Um, and that's the workforce development aspect of, of them working in the restaurant, working at every station in the restaurant. So they're, mm-hmm. they're understanding waiting tables and, and, and washing dishes and cooking and, um, how you disagree with somebody appropriately in all three stations. Um, but, but, but we're also focused on education, as you mentioned, uh, in the intro, uh, we've built our own high school, uh, and that was as a result of what the kids told us they needed. Um, right. so a hundred percent of our youth in our program are in school and on track to graduate. I think, uh, a little over a quarter of them have elected to, to, to try out college. Uh, um, incredible. Then, let's go. Um, and then, uh, you know, we also focus on 24 seven case management, um, because, um, so many of them are experiencing significant housing instability, food insecurity, medical issues. They need a government issued ID, you know, all those kind of stabilizing things. Right. Um, that, that, you know, social work case management can afford. And then the last thing is mental health. Um, so we, we provide mental health services, uh, in the form of, of, of group therapy, um, which is a great entree for them, uh, into comfortability of, of, of therapy, um, provide individual therapy. Um, and, and now, you know, we have young men and young women in the program. So our, our chief program officer jokes that sometimes she also provides couples therapy. Um, uh, which, you know, happens, um, but kind of like focusing on those four things, um, is, is the, the base ingredients of our recipe. Uh, question for you is how do people get involved? You know, obviously go to the restaurant, promote that, but how do people get involved? Yeah, definitely. I mean, showing up at the restaurant is a one critical. So if you're in Dallas, if you're in Pittsburgh, if you're in vicinity, please go, um, you know, and just to, um, not to dwell on that too much, but it's important to note that, you know, for a lot of our young people, um, they don't, uh, 
they don't leave their neighborhood. So for them to come out of their neighborhood and go to a restaurant and have people from all over uh, the community, the Metroplex, the city uh, coming in, they begin to see themselves as a member of a much larger community with greater resource and bigger network. And that might be the single most empowering thing that any of us can can do for them. Um, you can also um, get involved through Momentum Advisory Collective. We launched something earlier this year called the Momentum Pledge. Um, and that's um, working with chefs and restaurateurs to, to pledge to hire at least one justice-involved youth uh, into their, uh, their establishment. Um, you know, also, and we've been talking about this a lot lately, um, people are reaching out, calling your local juvenile department and just yep. ask, mm-hmm. you know, are there any volunteer opportunities? Is there anything I can do? Start a book club, um, right. anything, um, because what it, it's, it's your opportunity to really learn and understand where you do, like me, where you fit in and helping create change. And this has been an absolute pleasure, man. So serious. One thing I like to say all the time is presence is priceless. So thank you so much, man, for being present and, and, and blessing us with all this wisdom and all this game, man. I'm loving it. Everyone out there, you know, support Chad, support his yeah. effort. And uh, it's really phenomenal what you're doing. So kudos to you. Well, thank you to you both. You both don't have to be here and you are. And that says so much about you all. And it's a message that is not just motivating and inspiring for somebody like me to keep going, but also folks from the inside that are coming out. Yeah, for sure. There are people that love them and believe in them. So thank you both so much. All right, take care. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And you just heard our conversation with Chad Hauser. It's going down right here on The Last Mile Radio. We'll be back shortly, so stay tuned. Yes, yes, and we are back. We are back. You are tuned in to the Last Mile Radio right here on SiriusXM. And we just had a powerful, motivational discussion with Chad Hauser. It just got real. Chris, I got to say, we got a lot to unpack, big dog. We got a lot to unpack on this one. Yeah, there were so, so many similarities between his journey and, and my journey. And and uh, it was really refreshing to see that, you know, regardless of what sort of business you're in, there's an opportunity to make a difference, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm so focused on technology, but there are so many areas. Obviously, he's in the culinary and restaurant business and made such an impact there. Uh, and having the community engage in what he's doing. And also in Dallas, the state of Texas, which isn't necessarily considered the most progressive when it comes to criminal justice reform, right? Right. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. And I, I, I got to say, man, it, it I could relate as well. You know what I mean? But in a different kind of way, one of the things that he touched upon was acknowledging like his implicit biases and things of that nature, which is a huge growth turning point in life. I feel like for anybody. And one of the ways I could relate to that, you know, is, is kind of having implicit biases for people outside of my own community. You know, um, unfortunately, I think it goes both ways. Like typically, People that's not from my community see people in my community in a way that he admitted that he did initially, you know, the typical sure. gangster type of dude but yep. and vice versa. You know what I mean? If if, if I was not as far along in my journey as I am, I probably would have misjudged you, Chris. I know I misjudged plenty of people like you in my past. And that yep. turned out to be great to me and people that I look at like family now. So I think that's a huge part that can be relatable to practically anybody. That's very important when it comes to a journey of growth. You know, that starting point 
um, from A to Z, if we will, that overall mission. You know what I mean? That journey, I mean. And uh, that that really hit me, man. That really touched me. Yeah, and it's, you know, he mentioned when uh, when the youth were still inside and they were preparing and, and they got exposed to sort of what that meant to have that, sort of that outside influence. And, and right. um, you know, again, I, I mentioned the interview, but I experienced that too when we went in San Quentin. I went in with biases, right? And uh, discovery. reasonable, by the way. Like, we yeah. all have them. You know what I mean? We all have them. Yeah, and I think that's that's sort of generates why we want to do things like do this show, why we want to do things that um, create more transparency, because, right. you know, that is an undercurrent that is is pretty pervasive, right? And that, you can't necessarily blame people. But we're, what we're trying to do is is what Chad's doing, we're doing Last Mile, and many people are doing in criminal justice reform is creating more transparency. So you don't have that implicit bias and people can see and they can't, they don't judge the book by the, the cover and blah, 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 right? Right. Um, and also that understanding that, you know, when someone serves time, they've served time and they've they've basically done what society has asked them to do. Right. When they return to society, they we talk about return citizens, mm-hmm. but in many cases, you're not a citizen as a full blown citizen because you have restrictions. Right. So that's a thing that we have to think about. It's. You know, you have trouble getting jobs, you have trouble getting apartments, you have trouble voting, right? Right. And so a lot of these things we have to to take, you know, we have to resolve long term, but it all sort of revolves around this implicit bias that you mentioned. Absolutely. Absolutely. One one thing. So after the interview, you know, we chopped it up, you know, as as we do. And and one thing he said that that really hit me as well. He was like, because we talked about implicit bias specifically, and he was like, he, he painted a real vivid picture and he was like, nobody should have to experience, you know, somebody watching you and you obviously could see the judgment on their face. And now they're going to the other side of the street out of fear for whatever reason may be, you know, fueled by like an implicit bias. And that's something that I've actually experienced in my life firsthand several times from a child. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I agree with that. But the reason I bring that up is well, because I, I feel like the only way we can do something about it is we have to address it. We got to admit that it's there. And that's very difficult to do. And he was given solutions on how, you know, we dig deep and how we find that, how we figure these things out, if we will. But it also takes, you know, just that honesty with self, for sure. Yeah. Like for myself, you know, being being raised the way that I was, I, I, I was very ignorant in a lot of ways. So I didn't think I had implicit bias. I didn't think I had implicit biases or things of that nature for judging books before they covered just because I was black. Right. Like black people can't be racist or prejudiced or anything of those type of natures. So that's how I kind of justified it. But then I had to really get honest with myself. You know what I mean? Like I, I have these same things. I carry these same qualities and I have to do something about it. I have to yep. like actively go for that change to grow. So I think that was real important that he touched up on the solutions. You know, we all talk about the issues at hand and problems, but most importantly is what are we going to do about it? That's right. Well, he's definitely doing it and kudos to him. So I'm going to I'm going to switch gears a little bit here and I'm going to ask you a question. I've never asked you this before. Talk to me. What is your favorite meal? My favorite meal, hands down lasagna. Lasagna? Lasagna, hands down. Okay. Like a no-brainer, easy one for me. What about yep. you, Chris? What's your favorite? No, no, I will, wait, wait, before we get to me. <laughs> <laughs> What's in the lasagna? So I, I, I like, I like, you know, the, 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 
typical lasagna. I guess I grew up on Stouffer's lasagna, right? The frozen one. So whatever the hell is in that, that's what I like in lasagna. <laughs> Ricotta cheese, you know, some beef, of course, the pastas and, and, and the way that it's layered and the sauces and all that type of stuff, right? But Stouffer's lasagna specifically. Don't judge me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you got to learn to cook that, man. Maybe I'm, I'm great with an air fryer. You need to go to Cafe Momentum. You need to learn learn how to cook some of this stuff. I think I do, man. I think I would love to, actually. I think that's a great quality to have. For sure. We have I would to do love. a field trip. We have to do a field trip to one of you. I'm holding you to that. We doing it. It's happening. <laughs> so so um, I'm not going to get in trouble here. So I'm going to say that anything that my wife, Beverly, cooks <laughs> is my favorite. Great answer. Great answer. <laughs> oh, man. I love this. I love this. But But, but growing up, my mom... Who's you know, she doesn't cook anymore, but she's still hanging in there at a hundred two. Um, you know, one of her 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 favorite dishes was something called chicken Kiev. That was my favorite. What is like Adam? Not stuffed probably. chicken. It's like stuffed chicken. Mm-hmm. So we always knew we were having someone special come over when she made chicken Kiev. Never made it normally. Just you know, one of my faves. So they sounds eat. delicious. It sounds delicious. I'm gonna have to try it. I have to try. Blood, Chris. Sad to say it's getting close to that time, big dog. Chris, you know I got to give you your flowers, man. You know I got to give you your flowers as we do at this time. You always show up and show out, man. Well, I appreciate that. And back at you. And I also got to give you your flowers. Thank you for tuning in and rocking with us for this time. As I say all the time, man, presence is priceless. So thank you so much for rocking with us. And we would love to hear from you. We want to hear your voice. Let us know what you want to hear about. Come tap in with us. Make sure to tap in at thelastmileradio.org. And if you want to hear this show or any show, anytime, download the SiriusXM app. I'm Maserati E. And I'm Chris Redlitz. And this is The Last Mile Radio. On serious accent. No lie. I, I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I've been on a journey for a while. Finally, I see the last mile. I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, I'm paving the road to success. Hey, I'm paving the road to the best. Wait, no lie to the best ways. Increase the success rate. Define odds against us, even when it's unexpected. Changing the world by changing the way we view the world, it's all perspective.